Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to episode four of The Endgame. Uh, we've got our, our, our latest guest joining us shortly, uh, someone who will need no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. But um, with me on the journey, as always, my co-conspirator, Bill Feckenstein. Bill, you there? I am here, and I'm anxious to get uh, into it and talk to uh, my good friend Jim Grant about some uh, big-brained topics on what the future might look like. Yes, we will We will do that. Sure. I mean, just, just before we get started... Uh, Bill, you know, the, the, the response from people to um, our last conversation with Mike Green has been just fantastic. I mean, as, as a bookend to, to the conversation with James Aitken uh, the time before, it was, it was just fantastic. I, I was pretty um, impressed to see the things that people noted. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, it would appear that our idea of talking to people that have some interesting thoughts about these complicated subjects um, is proving useful. And I, I think the the mind the mind bender that uh, that um, Mike Green has unearthed about passive investing, I think, uh, threw everyone for a loop, um, uh, as it did you know me and I think you as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as we first heard about it, but um, I mean that's the whole point of this stuff is to see if we can figure out some things that might be um, useful for people to contemplate as they try to figure out how to navigate the financial uh, um, craziness that we're in the midst of. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well said. Well, look, navigating our financial future is something that we're trying to figure out. And uh, our guest today has done a phenomenal job, probably better than anybody, um, of his ilk, of chronicling the financial past. His knowledge of history is is unparalleled uh, and his ability to distill those trends and, and kind of look into the future and, and offer potential outcomes uh, and potential scenarios is something that I've found incredibly valuable over the years. So without any further ado, let's welcome uh, our mutual friend, Jim Grant, to the podcast. So so Jim, the the, the the matter at hand is is the end game of of sorts, and Bill and I are in are in search of various people who might be able to give us some insight into what it might look like. And you, as I said, are one of the people we figured would be a, a great sounding board for either our ideas or or some thoughts of your own. Well, I will I will do my best. I um, we, we have like three hours in this thing, right? We, we can we can come with something. Yeah, I'm sure we can. Yeah. Bill, I think I think I think Bill's we've lost Bill again. I think we might have to kick him out and get him to start again. All yeah. right, sorry about that. I, Jesus, isn't this funny? The guy with the technical problems turns out to be the, uh, the, the programmer, the, the former the computer guy. programmer. <laughs> okay, smart guy. Let, 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 let me start you off with a, a question about your most recent um, lead essay in the last issue, because I thought it was—it's okay. sort of an interesting juxtaposition of of monetary conditions uh, coming from a. Uh, an unusual source. You pointed out that in um, the late 60s, coins became scarce because of their intrinsic value. People were melting them down. And now coins are scarce seemingly because they're not worth anything. Uh, Would you like to comment on the transition between those two short periods of time? 
Yeah, in the uh, in the early '60s, uh, coinage was silver. In fact, uh, if you are of a certain age, you grew up talking about silver as a shorthand for change. And um, uh, the intrinsic value of a of the uh, of a coin uh, uh, was, of course, uh, uh, related to the uh, the market price of silver. Now, silver was a dollar an ounce in the early '60s, and um, and I think the break even on one of the coins, I mean, maybe a dollar twenty nine for a quarter, just for argument's sake, you know, is that right? So as as the price of silver rose uh, as the '60s wore on, uh, you have, were presented with a, a kind of a, a primitive arbitrage opportunity involving a melting pot, and uh, people began <laughs> to collect these coins and uh, and uh, and melt them for the for the silver and. Uh, and it, the expression of this opportunity took all sorts of different forms. You know, uh, uh, Las Vegas uh, slot operators needed coins by the wholesale of job lot, you know, and, they, and they had to pay up for it. They had to pay a premium for $1,000 worth or $10,000 worth of coins. Uh, coins disappeared, and uh, the vending machine operators began to complain. And, uh, and the Chase Manhattan Bank put out a sign saying, you know, if you would give us your change, we'll give you in return some nice, crisp, fresh dollar bills of which we have an unlimited quantity. And that was the uh, symbolic expression of a coin shortage that, in fact, had a deep monetary connotation. Uh, so that was the early 60s, and the uh, 60s wore on. It turns out that uh, the silver went way above 129, and the coin industry. And in 1965, the LBJ of Linda Baines Johnson, then president, signed a bill uh, demonetizing silver and the coins henceforth became slugs. And uh, that was 65. And it was six years later that the United States suspended convertibility of the dollar at the fixed rate of $35 to the ounce of gold. So the, the silver hoarders in that time seemed to have an eye on monetary conditions of the bond market, for example, did not. Interest rates were stable throughout this period of disappearing silver. So that was then. And fast forward to the present day, what can we say about uh, monetary conditions today? Well, in one respect, uh, we are looking at, uh, at, at net progress. Now, I mean, people can walk into a store, uh, even for very small denominations, and stick a, a very handy plastic card in the uh, nice applicator, and uh, lo and behold, transactions finished, no fuss, no muss. So that's count that as kind of a stride forward in human technology and progress. No, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but the coinage, nonetheless, still serves a purpose, and it has gone missing. Why is that? Because uh, commerce itself has gone missing in good part, owing to the, the virus and in particular to the government's lockdown. So uh, this, what does this say about uh, monetary affairs? Well, it says, I think it says it, it's, it's a marker. It's a marker of the government's increasing presence, and one might almost say omnipresence, and our monetary and financial affairs, right? So uh, um, the government has uh, has taken upon itself to sh uh, shutter commerce and good part coins disappear, and the coins that have disappeared are mere slugs, mere symbols, just as the dollar bill is now a mere symbol. So it's it's a it's an interesting contrast, and one could make the case that it's both. Uh, the mark of progress on the one hand, and the mark of deep retrogression on the other. Well, obviously, 
part of the reason for the wisdom behind doing that then was because, as you pointed out, the, the price of the underlying precious metals was was moving up. It, it appears as though because people were beginning to anticipate a higher rate of inflation. Um, now, if we fast forward to today, obviously they've gone missing for a slightly different reason. It doesn't change the fact that they're virtually worthless. But is there some way to torture the facts to suggest that that's an, uh, um, sort of a, um, a, a, a precursor of more inflation or people's expectations of more inflation, do you think? No, I, I, think, the, I think the disappearance of the coinage now is simply a matter of uh, uh, that, uh, the, the, you know, that stores don't uh, recycle them as they did. I, I'm, mm-hmm. for one, on exactly the same page as the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Jay Powell, my friend, and I, uh, see eye to eye. That's the first time they will see this. This is, this is a sound bite uh, for the ages here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, Jay is, on the, is exactly correct. Exactly correct. Coins have gone missing because of the lockdown. There. I've, I'm, okay, that's the last you'll hear of that one. But um, Jim, Jim let, me, let, me, let me ask you, there's something you said there when you, when you talked about um, just the, the base of the man in the street arbitraging this difference between silver and the silver price, which... which humans and market participants have done forever. Whenever there is an arbitrage, it gets arbitraged away. But what do you make of general conditions now? And, and, and you know, we're in this point where, for example, the, the Hertz madness, which again, you chronicled so brilliantly in, in Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Um, that kind of madness where you see things happening uh, which are patently ludicrous and, and provide an enormous arbitrage opportunity, one would think, but the, the kind of professionals that, that are able and willing to, to take the other side of those arbs seem to be crowded out now by a whole bunch of irrational actors. Yeah. It, 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 what, what do you make of that? Because I, I find well, it extraordinary. I, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, Grant, it's a, it's a wonderful observation and a great question. And the, you have to begin to ask, uh, you know, so what's irrational? And <laughs> is it irrational to crowd into the stock market and... Uh, and chase momentum when the rate of growth in broad money supply is the highest in any peacetime period in modern American history. So as of last time we looked, uh, not so long ago, uh, M3 as pieced together by our friends at uh, what the Shadow Stats uh, was running at a rate in excess of 20% year over year. Now, you don't see that uh, ordinarily. You don't see the Fed's balance sheet uh, expanding as it uh, had been doing a little uh, late in the spring at rates in excess of 700% per annum. So people have been uh, buying stocks and they've been buying stocks in the knowledge that the Federal Reserve has been uh, uh, interposing itself between uh, credit risk and the price of fixed income securities. You know, Fed's been buying investment grade Securities uh, has dabbled in junk. Of course, it's buying mortgages. It has bought mortgages and treasuries by the job lot. So interest rates are under the thumb of the federales, and money supply is running as rampantly as it has done in anyone's uh, lifetime now. And uh, so, what do you do? So one could make the argument that uh, uh, that this action in the securities markets is is uh, not so irrational, although the form it takes it is a, from time to time is a head scratcher if you're 
uh, one of those people buying the equity of a bankrupt company with the debt trading that yields well in excess of uh, 30 and 40 percent. You, you do wonder what you're thinking about as you can, uh, contemplate the transaction. Perhaps you're thinking that the guy at Barstool Sports is really smart. <laughs> so there, 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 you know, there's, there's, there is a strain of randomness and of devil may care and a joie de vivre on the part of these quarantine people. They just want to one little action, right? That's kind of that's that's not irrational, right? One little fun out of life, and you can't go outside for breath. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that you know the mar- that the Fed is fond of talking about market function as a reason or a pretext for these massive interventions. But then it seems to me that we have much less uh, functional market functioning now that the Fed is uh, breathing down all of our necks than we had before. Let me ask you this, Jim. You brought up an interesting point about the money supply, you know, really moving at a fairly rapid pace for the first time in a long time, quite a long time. I have a smart friend who's a a bond guy who I argue with about inflation from time to time. And he makes the, the point that the money supply growth doesn't count because so much of it is PPP loans. And he believes that the distinction between a PPP loan and a, quote, otherwise productive loan is a very big deal. I myself can't really, I mean, I can understand it, but I don't really believe it. Have you thought about that? And do you think that makes a big difference, what the money actually goes for? Um, You know, money's fungible. It doesn't matter whether it's labeled as a PPP loan or as as a working capital loan. I think there is something to the argument that some of this money growth uh, will prove to be uh, temporary uh, because, um, for example, companies took out uh, a huge uh, uh, precautionary loans uh, in March and April to uh, make sure they had enough money to roll over debt if debt markets were not functioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I, I think that I think that the, this, this positive torrent of monetary expansion will subside. But what is different now about the prior 10 years in which, despite the Fed's exertions, their balance sheet was growing as it had not grown previously? That was, it seemed as if this were an inflationary signal. Certainly, I was of that view for too long. Uh, What's different now is that the Fed's impulses have been translated into very rapid growth in transactions balances. Now, that was not the case. Uh, for most of the period from 2010 or 11 up until, you know, up until 2019. So we don't, uh, as usual, know more about this in five years. I am uh, uh, much less inclined to be dogmatic about it than I might have been when I was uh, 20 years younger. Let me see, 20 years ago, I was, that put me around 80 years old, I guess. <laughs> then I was, I was of the view that uh, somehow the future had been revealed to me alone. And so many of these questions are slightly more... Uh, if, if not wiser, certainly humbler about the future. But I, you know, I, I, th- I think that uh, if you're looking for a possible inflation setup, and I think that was perhaps what, Bill, what you were driving at with this question, here is the way I see things now with respect to the likelihood of a new inflation. And, you know, I, on the negative side, I see the, I see the, uh, the terrific undertow, a deflationary kind of undertow, certainly a, a tendency of debt 
to be a force for deflation. Why? Because encumbered or leveraged companies uh, have to generate revenue to service fixed charges, right? So to generate revenue, you produce. And to produce, you make, you make more of what you're making and the sacrifice of margins simply to bring in the top line. All right, so that, that's one force on the deflation side. And there, there are others like that as well. But on the contrary side, I see a much stronger case. And that case would include, uh, for one thing, the expression of sentiment, not merely in words, but in deeds. You look at, look at them. I've lost track of the current tally of fixed income, income securities worldwide. They're yielding less than nothing in nominal terms. And it had been, you know, 10 or 12 trillion, let's call it 10 trillion. But think of it, that people in charge of $10 trillion worth of bonds are satisfied to accept less than nothing with the assurance of getting something from a government that is issuing currency it intends to debase. So that's one sighting. Uh, a second sighting is something that uh, I just uh, got from friends at uh, uh, Lee Gehring, uh, Gehring and, uh, and, uh, and Adam Rosenzweig. They are a commodity-related investment firm, and they have recreated kind of the, the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. They've, they've, they've recreated going backwards. They've kind of reverse-engineered it from the year 1900, and they've compared that against the Dow. And... Uh, uh, they figure that the reverse engineering is more or less correct because they've checked it against the current GSCI. So, all right, so let's, let's, let's uh, stipulate the stats are okay. And what they find is that in relation to financial assets, as expressed in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, commodities are selling at the lowest point in 120 years. So it's another point of sentiment, not merely in words, but also in deeds. So the world has come to believe in the efficacy of the pure paper monetary standard, hence the popularity of bonds here at these yields. The world has come to trust the judgment and the deeds of the people like Ben S. Bernanke, PhD, and the 700-odd PhD. Everyone is, I think, collectively bought into the efficacy of macroeconomics, which uh, I think is actually uh, not very efficacious. I think macroeconomics is rather an empty bag. But people have bought into the monetary regime. They've bought into the notion that interest rates only decline. They've been declining since 1981. That's upwards of 40 years. How's that for muscle memory? So I, I, I think that things are set up for a surprise. And so all you want to know, naturally, is what are you being paid to, uh, to bet against the, the grain, against the received wisdom? Well, I don't know. They're... A lot of cheap miners, and Bill and Grant, I think you know more about these valuations than I do. Uh, our friends at Gehring Rosenzweig contend that commodity stocks generally are as depressed against financial assets as the commodity indices themselves are. So, you know, the, I, 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 whatever the, however this turns out, at least the setup to me, the pro-inflation setup is appealing and interesting. And the odds appear welcoming. And that's kind of all you can ask for when you can't know the future. Jim, let, let me ask you, I, 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 would, I would add that the, um, that negative yielding total amount in the world extraordinarily went from, I think, 15 trillion down to just below eight in March, but it's back up at 14 again. 
which just shows you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's remarkable. But um, oh, Jay, uh, as an aside, I saw a, a squib from someone in the last two days that if you add up all the bonds that yield between zero and one percent, it sums to a hundred trillion. Right now, yeah, I don't know if that could be correct or not, Jim. You know more about those those big numbers than I do, but um, that. <clears throat> That would be pretty powerful, if true. A, yeah, I think that's wholly that's uh, that's wholly unreasonable and reasonable at the same time. Yeah. So, so Jim, <laughs> g- given your believable, right, right. <laughs> given given your hundred years on the planet, that would that would mean um, that you, unlike myself, certainly, and, and Bill probably has a better recollection, but the turn back in at the end of the seventies towards that inflationary cycle of the eighties, perhaps you can kind of paint a picture for us of how that looked at the time and your recollections of what that turn looked like because it, it does feel like as you point out we're at that extreme again where a turn one would think it becomes more likely if not if not probable and certainly more possible can you kind of sketch yes. what you saw then and that maybe the, the the signs that you would look for yeah well i'll do my best um uh i think that, that, that let's go back um uh to uh 1960 uh, and we'll build up to 1981. September 30th of 1981 was the day the long bond peaked intraday at uh, yield of uh, 15%. And uh, all the, the whole drama began really in, uh, around 1960. And, and what is so interesting about the first five years of the decades of the 60s was the stillness and the self-complacency that that stillness um, encouraged among people who were guiding our monetary destinies way back when. Um, the rate of inflation uh, in those uh, five or six years, inclusive 60 to 65, the rate of inflation, I think, never got above 2% and frequently was below 1%. And all this time, the, the, the uh, long dated uh, Treasury was uh, priced to yield approximately 4%. So that's about three percentage points of real yield. But the uh, those five years of the first half of the 60s were a time of, uh, according to the interest rate historian Sidney Homer, uh, characterized that uh, that block of time as the uh, least volatile in history up to that time. That was still he wrote the book in 77, I guess. So that 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 was a setup. And um, so, what did people take away from that stillness and from the utter lack of volatility? Well, they took away from the fact that. Uh, that the Keynesian method of managing our affairs had finally, um, they found the philosopher's stone. Um, the unemployment rate was very low, the inflation rate was very low, interest rates were stable, uh, the economy was growing like gangbusters, and what was not wonderful? All right, so um, the backdrop to this was a little bit less uh, stable and slightly more worrisome, and that is the United States then at this, on this Bretton Woods system, whereby it stood to exchange dollar bills. Uh, foreign banks and central banks had collected. They, the United States stood to exchange those green pieces of paper for gold at the ratio of $35 to one ounce. That was the deal. That was the Bretton Woods deal. So the United States had been losing gold from the late 50s. And uh, the Vietnam War began to hot up in 1965-66, and we lost more because, uh, you know, it costs uh, war costs money. And um, 
so the, the the draw on our domestic on, on available gold they call it free gold on our, on the gold available to satisfy foreign claims that dwindled in relation to those claims. And uh, the Fed responded with Operation Twist. It was an attempt to manipulate the yield curve to encourage dollars to flow back to this country to raise short-term interest rates in relation to long. So it was a, it was a decade at first of complacency, then of concern, and finally, as you get to the early 1970s, of urgency. And that explains why Nixon felt he had to suspend convertibility. That you know, we call that default. <laughs> Well, the United States defaulted on August 15, 1971, and the same day that Nixon uh, defaulted, he also introduced wage and price controls. So the inflation dogs were then well and truly out of kennel. And uh, not in a straight line, of course, the uh, inflation rate subsided first. And I remember Bob Blyberg, my mentor at Barron's, wrote an editorial called A Whiff of Deflation. And this was when the government was... Uh, was all was commanding everyone to wear whip inflation now buttons. This That's right. The general, brief Gerald Ford presidency. Uh, but in comes Jimmy Carter and uh, lots of spending, a very loose Fed. And before you know it, the rate of inflation was not 4%, but 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and at length, double digits. And of course, there was this Arab oil embargo as well. Shortages of everything. You couldn't find anything you wanted to buy. Great puzzlement in the press about why there were these shortages. So muscle memory takes its own course because things have been turning inflation. Right? If you go into the late 70s for upwards of a dozen years. And uh, bond prices, what we knew about them was they went down. That was the, uh, the dogma. They have been going down since the spring of 1946. Not in a straight line, but persistently. And uh, so the yields have begun to go down from a level of two and a quarter. I'm sorry, go up. Bond prices down. Two and a quarter was the low ebb in 1946. And before you know it, in the 60s, there was the sexy sixes. And then the sevens and the eights, nines, and uh, an issue of treasuries called the DC tens, uh, morbidly or ghoulishly called because that coincided with the collapse, with the crash of a, a Donald Douglas DC 10 airliner. At length, uh, 10 turns into 11, 12. By this time, what you really knew was there was no hope for the bond market, right? right? Never mind that Ronald Reagan had broken the air traffic controllers union. Never mind that Ronald Reagan was president. Never mind that, that deregulation was the, uh, was the way forward, uh, an idea shared both by Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Never mind that, uh, uh, that commodity prices had gotten so high that it seems as if they really weren't much of a bargain. In fact, uh, uh, they seemed a little bit, uh, uh, you know, they seemed uh, uh, a little bit excessive. Um, but still, uh, you knew about interest rates. You knew what they did; they go up. And for no reason that was announced beforehand, no issued a press release. Um, the fall of 1981 proved to be it. That the forces of re, re, uh, what's the technical word for it? Uh, anyway, the forces of reversal. Let's call it were in place, 15% was a terrifically depressing rate of interest to pay on a treasury obligation, a tre de depressing rate one had to bear that cost. Certainly mortgage rates in excess of 15% were not encouraging home formation. And, uh, and in retrospect, one could see that uh, 
uh, that something had changed. Uh, something had indeed changed for the gold market. It peaked at eight hundred and what fifty dollars an ounce intraday in early nineteen eighty. And uh, uh, but even that was not a straight line because fast forward nineteen eighty four, the inflation rate was now back from ten percent to four percent. But lo and behold, the long bond suddenly in the spring of 84 yielded 14%, 14%. 10% is points of real yield available for anyone who would avail himself or herself of the securities on offer. And you could buy 0%, zero coupon treasuries that would internally compound at rates in excess of 13%. Equity returns, no equity risk. Who wanted them? I think Bill Fleckenstein was the only buyer. Uh, he was, but Bill was 12, and he bought some, but very few people availed themselves because we knew what interest rates did. They went up, bond prices went down. So this, uh, well, I've been taking, talking for, what, 25 minutes? So the, the, this narrative from the early 60s to the mid-80s, is I meant it to describe um, the kind of the halting progress in both directions. At first, the inflation thing seemed impossible. After all, the... How can inflation come out of no inflation? That was the view in the mid-60s, but it did. Right. And then in the early 80s, how can little inflation come out of lots? Impossible. Well, that too proved not only possible, but it proved that it happened. So, the, the, so we can all apply this in our own ways to the, pre I must say, if this recital of facts and narrative seems fluid, it's because I have been uh, inflicting it on the readers of grants for longer than I can just now to remember, and no one can look it up because it's too embarrassing. So um, I'm not saying it's uh, the reversal of certain in Grant. You kindly posed the question that way. But my goodness, it does seem as if we were overdue for some interruption in this uh, certain, dead certainty of what interest rates do and what uh, other assets do. Well, you know, what, what your vignette there made quite clear and brought back memories for me was how certain people were about the impossibility of both inflation and then disinflation. And you could juxtapose that to now. And, you know, there's a certain, uh, I would say, certainty that we can't have any inflation, even though you, what you've described, and we can list more, <coughs> There are lots of reasons to think that they've created the, the, the strong preconditions for just that. Yes. So one of the things I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to ask you, um, going back to your prior point, was you're starting to, you, you mentioned how we didn't really get the Fed to the banking system transmission mechanism really going in the, say, 2011 to 2020 period. <clears throat> and, and perhaps that's what kept inflation more in check uh, in check to, to, to the degree that it was, even if we believe the data. Um, but this time around, but during that period, we didn't really have much much increase in deficit spending um, other than the first three or four years there uh, of the Obama administration relative to now. Now we've got, you know, maybe the transmission mechanism ignited, as you noted, and now we've got, you know, massive uh, deficit spending everywhere. Do you think that adds to the argument or is that just meh? Just another fact, or is it a powerful fact? Well, I think it, I, yeah, I, I think it does. And um, you know what is so extraordinary to anyone who has had a um, a little bit of experience watching not only events but also the way that 
investors frame events. What is so interesting now is the, is the utter uh, disbelief that anything like deficit spending could prove to be disadvantageous, right? I mean, in 1979, 80, 81, there was a positive fetish about the federal budget. And uh, people thought, you know, deficit spending. And, and the spending then was, of course, uh, nothing. It was compared to what we have now. But uh, people focused on that. Uh, remember the Reagan deficits? People um, were all over Reagan for the ruination of uh, of the uh, federal finances, of, of the public credit. That was the phrase. Well, don't credit. you remember how they excoriated Stockman for trying to tell the truth yeah. a little bit? Yes, yes, yeah. And um, uh, you know, the and and then what happened was, of course, that the public debt um, doubled, a tripled rather, and interest rates halved. And uh, God, that was so. Um, it was such a slap in the face to anyone who was you know, who cared about the deficit then. And I think a lot of that attitude has uh, has uh, has continued. After all, empirically, if you know, you look at it, so so what is uh, what's so inflationary about all this? You know, we got the ten-year yields uh, sixty-one basis points, whatever yields at this moment. And uh, why can't we just keep on doing this? This this explains the. Uh, the sudden popularity of, of uh, so-called modern monetary theory. I mean, it works, right? I mean, what's the harm? And uh, you have to, and the people who would contend that there is harm are finally, or they can make all the arguments they want to from a point of view of theory and, and history, but finally they, they are reduced to saying, just what? Just wait. Yeah. And, um, and that is, uh, many people find that unpersuasive. So, Jim, I was just, just as you were walking us through that period, there are so many bells going off in my head about about conditions which are ex- extremely similar and yet diametrically opposed. But it feels to hear someone like you with that grasp of the timeline run us through it, it's almost a mirror image. And when you talked about expectations, um, you know, I, I keep thinking about this this idea of, of scarcity when, when we had this inflation scare in the 70s, the oil shock, and that, and as you pointed out, the fact that people were struggling to get hold of things. You know, we've seen the pandemic now, and, and my friend Pippa Malgram was talking about how in London, when the shelves were devoid of bread uh, a couple of months ago, people would willingly expect to pay more for such luxuries as items of bread. And, and it's, that, it's that expectations component that that seems so important are you seeing stirrings of expectations or again is that something that is managing somehow to remain subdued yes i you know i uh, last uh, um last weekend in um uh there was a newspaper headline uh, page one headline in a tabloid called newsday newsday is the paper of long island and the uh, the page one headline was uh uh, the prices going up on Long Island, and um, and this was presented as uh, rather a scandal. And uh, the Consumer Reporter, who handles uh, uh, you know uh, instances of being shortchanged in stores and uh, uh, and roofing companies uh, ripping you off or overcharging, that that guy was covering this as a as a, as a form of computer consumer exploitation, but but. Uh, if you read the story, it wasn't a very deep story, but the story said that because um, entrepreneurs 
Uh, they were talking mainly about uh, neighborhood uh, restaurants and bars and uh, dry cleaners because they were doing uh, much less volume. They had to compensate by charging more. And uh, some people found that reasonable. In any case, it was what was happening. And that, that seems to me a kind of a commonsensical thing, right? If you, if, um, if you are running a business and uh, you have uh, half of the foot traffic, what do you do? You, well, you try to compensate. And, and people just need to say, Grant, I yeah. think, have, have learned to expect some of this. And uh, they may, too, have made judged it to be reasonable. Well, so you're, you're kind of touching on the um, inflation psychology component. We could call it expectations, for you know, but it's the same sort of thing. It may be a necessary prerequisite that people somehow become a little preconditioned. Um, obviously, the labor unions, the strength of them helped exacerbate the inflation of the 70s. And we haven't we, we don't really have that dynamic of work, but maybe what people have experienced with the virus and sorry, the disruptions caused by the virus with shortages and maybe buying extra stuff just in case and as opposed to just right. in time, maybe maybe that psychological uh, um, um, willingness, perhaps to recognize the fact that prices may go up may in fact be part of what's needed to change the inflation psychology and expectations expectations yeah i agree you, know, you and i bill have uh, have both enjoyed a, um, uh, a, a phrase from yesteryear and uh, um, one of my biographical subjects uh, bernard Baruch, a speculator and political figure from uh, the uh, early 20th century um, quoted a mentor of his on Wall Street. Baruch kind of came up as a as a broker and then a kind of a one man hedge fund. And uh, his mentor would uh, use the phrase "the continuity of bullish thought" or "the continuity of bearish thought." And what happens when a trend change was the continuity. Let's call it bullish. The continuity of bullish thought was broken. And it sounds uh, it sounds a little bit airy and insubstantial, except it speaks to a very important thing, which is the mindset and expectations of investors. I don't think there was anything in the physics of the debt market that caused interest rates, bond yields to go from 10% to 15%. I think that was just, that was, to me, purely a matter of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of surrender and of, of speculative give up and uh, of, of, a, of a trend that is just playing itself out. And maybe that'll prove to be the case with inflation as well. I don't think inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. I think it might, as a kind of a tautology, always have its basis, uh, if only a remote basis, in, in excess of currency. But I think it's finally, uh, it's a it's a it's a moral phenomenon. It's something for nothing. Is is the nature of inflation. I think it is uh, also a a phenomenon of confidence confidence in in the central bank and in the nature of the currency that the central bank produces and distributes. I mean, uh, we, we are now, somehow, we've all come, accepting the people on this call, but many of us have come to accept that the central bankers truly know what they're doing. They are in charge of events. Well, nothing like that was in the air in the late 1970s when G. William Miller, for one, was running the Fed before Paul Volcker stepped in. Fed was rather a laughing stock. Bond market didn't take it seriously. And that explains why yields went up and up and up, and why the inflation rate went up. But uh, uh, 
You know, when, when, when people don't trust money, they don't want to hold it. Simple as that. So why wouldn't you want to hold dollars? Well, because, uh, you know, because uh, something is getting, uh, something, they're not appreciating value. And, but uh, you can go out and buy an extra two of toothpaste because that item, that item of merchandise is going up next week. That's, that's an inflationary transaction, right? It's inflation. It's an example of inflationary mindset, and it was it was certainly prevalent for many years, and it's possible it's coming back again, but not certainly not uh, certain, and not if it is coming back, it, nothing to say it's coming back soon. But um, well, uh, timing, I'll leave to you. Well, let me <clears throat> speaking of the timing, that kind of that kind of leads to uh, sort of one of the topics of our uh, of our quote unquote show here. Uh, that being the end game, and uh, so I'm. I, I'd like to put this to you. I mean, obviously, something will end the insanity of printing money and something for nothing and all of that. My shorthand version has always been: somehow the central bank loses the bond market. Now, exactly what loses the bond market means is open to discussion. But I was wondering if you've thought about, you know, what that might look like, and and given the fact that the Fed has threatened yield curve control, or I think it seems like they've threatened it, um, would we be wiser to look at the corporate bond market, and maybe seeing spreads move out at some point because inflation expectations have ratcheted up, and people express that there. We would see credit spreads widen, not because of inferior credit, just because people want a little bit more. So, I mean, do you have a what? What would you think or about what losing the bond market might look like, or is that even a, a good way to think about things? Well, I think it's I think it's a very good way of looking at things. Um, first, as to as to yield curve control, I think it is here. It's not here in name, but it is here in fact. There is a uh, the the VIX is a measure of volatility in stocks. The so-called MOVE index, M-O-V-E, MOVE index is the measure a measure of volatility in bonds. The MOVE index, uh, which comes out of uh, I guess Merrill Lynch and now uh, Bank of yeah Bank of America yeah. Uh, yeah Bank of America Merrill Lynch is is at its lows. It goes back it goes back long enough to make its lows significant. So the bond market. Volatility in the bond market is dead, and the 10-year yield, which I guess is the current benchmark, has moved within 10 basis points for many, many months between 60 basis points and 70 odd. And I, th- I, th- I think I think people, regardless of what the latest speech of the latest Fed governor is all about, I think the, the market has decided that yield curve control is a fact. That the suppression of yields is a fact. All right. So, what does that uh, what does that mean? Well. It means that um, if there were to be an unscripted inflation, the Fed would have to decide what to do, right? Uh, uh, presumably, people would want fewer of these securities if it could be demonstrated, not through one uh, a not seemingly anomalous, uh, you know, uh, unauthorized monthly CPI report, but a succession of them and a evidence of a gathering trend. Uh, the Fed, if it were intent upon suppressing these yields, would have to work harder, meaning we would have to buy more, meaning we would have to create more money with which to buy more. Now, um, what would that, what would people do about that? And what would uh, the Fed do? And well, um, you know, uh, 
this is a very leveraged economy. The consumer has, in fact, powered down and it's in his or her borrowing <laughs> since um, the last crisis, but uh, corporate America has rather levered up. And it seems as if every time the funds rate has gotten to uh, 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 two and a half or three percent, rivets start to pop in, uh, in the collective balance sheet of American business. And, um, you know, uh, Grant, your, um, your confrere and friend, mine, uh, Stephanie, uh, has, uh, Stephanie Pomboy has, was very quick to observe that and very prescient about that. Yeah. So, uh, what would the Fed do if it, if it were inclined to change tack and to work at uh, beating back an inflation that was no longer nascent, but evident, it would have to do what? It'd have to sell these securities. It would have to uh, go into the market and offer things that the market really didn't want at the yields the Fed would prefer to offer than that. The Fed would have to be, would have to be uh, com- complicit. It would have to be a driver of a bear bond market. Now, what would that mean to companies that had levered up to exploit the possibilities inherent in a negative interest rate, negative real interest rate world, in a 0% funding world, in short, the world that we have been living in over these past 10 years. So the Fed would have to decide between, um, between deflationary credit action and inflation at the checkout counter. Right? What do you do? Well, I think the Fed is on record as tipping its hand already. In the face of that dynamic, the Fed would be very late in moving to counter an inflation trend. It rather welcomes it, right? The Fed has been talking in its speeches and its uh, position papers about possibly uh, doing makeup, right? If the, if the Fed has been behind the curve on inflation at once 2%, only 2%, mind you, uh, in that case, it, it must, says, uh, says the new orthodoxy, it must allow a little bit more inflation. We know how that's going to work. Yep. The Fed is going to lose it. And the Fed is going to, as you put it so well, they'll lose the bond market. So the bond market is going to start getting ahead of the Fed selling. The bond market has been getting ahead of the Fed buying, right? So it'll, it'll, it'll unspool and reverse in its own time, its own fullness of time, when perhaps uh, some of us on this call have capitulated. I don't intend to be the first one, but you never know. Um, but I, I, you know, you look at uh, look at the way this thing has worked so perfectly with respect to financial asset bull markets in the past 10, 20, 30 years. Go back a long way. I mean, it's, and if it works the other way, people won't recognize the pattern at first, and it will be as disturbing as it is unprofitable. And that is, to me, that's the... That's the end game. Jim, what do you, what do you think about um, negative rates in the U.S.? Because if we look at the Fed funds futures, we can see that they're basically pricing in negative rates next year. So the market is expecting the Fed to go negative next year. Uh, sorry, the, the rates in the, in the U.S. to go negative next year. Um, Mike Green, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our conversation with him, but he talked about um, what a huge event that would be in that it takes away that, that risk-free Put that pays hedge funds to own the um, own the ten year uh, as a kind of put against the market. What are, to, in your mind, what do negative rates in the U.S. mean 
for for the United States and and the world beyond that? Oh, I I um I I, I do credit um, uh, Chair Powell's uh, protest that uh, it would more or less have to do it over his dead body. I think he is dead set against it. He's only one vote, of course, although right. certainly not the least important vote in the Federal Open Market Committee. I think the Fed would be very reluctant to do it, notwithstanding the futures market and the federal fund and the Fed funds futures market. But having said that, I think if it did happen, it would be um, a sign of the utter capitulation of the monetary authorities worldwide. Uh, and it would be the starting pistol for people to reconsider. Again, I'm talking my book here. Certainly, I'm talking my not only my expectation, but I suppose my hope. It would be the starting pistol for an orderly, thoughtful reconsideration of the nature of fiat currencies yeah. and of the cost and the damage that this radical monetary manipulation episode has cost everyone. And I hope it would be the uh, uh, the invitation to uh, consider alternatives. Uh, in the speculative realm, I, I expect, and I, I guess, again, to top my own book, in the Grant's Interest Rate Observer book, it would be uh, an invitation to own more of that monetary asset that has stood the test of time and that is not susceptible uh, to central bank manipulation. So I think it would be a very important watershed in the way that people thought about the money, the management of money through central banks, and the nature of uh, uh, money outside of the uh, of the fiat world. But you know, as as we talk about the end game, sorry, Bill, I don't want to trample over you here. But as we talk about the end game, you know, it, it occurs to me when I hear you talk that way that maybe that is the end game that the world actually needs to play out because without that um, that starting pistol going off, without there being something that really forces that conversation to take place again, it's certainly not one that anyone in any position of authority is going to is going to want to enter into voluntarily. I mean, it seems that the world almost has to reach a point where this end game is forced upon people. And Bill I and I have been focusing on... Yeah. Look, look, at what, look at what happened to uh, Judy Shelton. Right, yeah, great, great uh, point. Who was uh, you know, President Trump's uh, nominee. I mean, talk about the patience of Job. She has been waiting for her shot at this, what, better part of three years? Three? Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, consider what she has gone through in terms of uh, mockery and and, uh, and the uh, attempted destruction of her professional reputation because not because she advocates a gold standard. She is very very measured in all this. She kind of thinks that the you know the treasury ought to sell gold denominated bonds as the experiment, and that uh, you know, she, she is um, she reminds me a little bit uh, uh, not not to say that she's not interested in gold. She is. But she reminds me a little bit in her views of uh, this uh, woman who just quit the op-ed page of the New York Times, Barry. Right. Oh, Barry Weiss, yeah. Barry Weiss. Uh, right. I, forgot, I should forget her name. Yeah, Barry Weiss, yeah. Um, but Barry Weiss, right. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and Barry contends, contends that she was driven out in um, at the Times because she dared to hold uh, opinions that were not at the extreme level. Well, the, the counterpart is the Federal Reserve is all the way over, as it were, on the left with regard to money, right? And along comes a centrist with tendencies towards the right um, in the person of Judy Shelton, who, by the way, called the end of the Soviet empire 
when that empire still existed. She's a, a woman who is used to thinking outside the box and who has right. demonstrated the capacity for not only for thought and analysis, but also imagination. And she comes along and she is subjected uh, to, the, uh, to the most condescending, insulting uh, reception that any Fed governor in my experience has ever received. So that, that's where the world is. So yes, Grant, people, people need some prod. They need, they need to be reminded of the, the in, no, reminded. They need to be led into the, into a, uh, an open-mindedness about alternatives that, that, that which open-mindedness now is, uh, is absent, utterly absent. Certainly it's, it's entirely absent from the economics profession. Yeah. And it's mainly absent from, uh, even from the, uh, the Wall Street commentariat. Um, Jim, one question I wanted to ask you, which given how often we speak, I, I probably should have done this before, but um, anyway, here goes. Um, is there anything we can learn about what ended the post-World War II yield curve control um, and you know what kind of caused that to end that we might look for as a potential catalyst to... Um, you know, maybe the psychology having changed it about the bond market. I don't really know well what happened, but I know you must. Yeah. Well, yield curve control came in, I think, in 1942. The United States just entered the Second World War. And um, the Treasury had a lot of a lot of financing to do. So the Fed uh, then, uh, I forget now whether the Secretary of the Treasury was still an ex-officio member of the Board of Governors, but certainly up until almost that time, the Treasury had had a seat in monetary deliberations. Maybe that ended in 1935. But anyway, anyway, it was was a thing that was either in existence or in recent memory, but the Treasury uh, uh, virtually took over the the Fed, uh, or at least it it leaned heavily on the Fed. The Fed, okay, we will we will peg the bond yields at uh, so-and-so. I guess the, I forget what the yields were. The bond yield was uh, two and a quarter and the this intermediate yield, I think the Treasury bill yield was five-eighths of 1%. That was in force from 1942 until 1951. What happened in 1951 was, um, or let me not skip the immediate immediate post-World War II experience. In 1946, the rate of inflation uh, was, in some months, was in excess of 15%. Why? Because price controls were coming off and because all this pent-up demand and wartime rationing had now loosed was upon the economy and the real yields of course were uh well way i mean it was it was impossible you, you were earning two percent on your securities and the inflation rate was called 12 percent. all right still president truman said we will not relax these yield curve controls because in the wake of world war one controls had come off and people had taken taken a licking on their liberty bonds they've been called so that was the mindset. So controls were in place since 1951 when the Korean War was on. But the Fed had had it. It said, look, we have to do something. This is now William McChesney Martin uh, negotiating. Uh, inflation is coming on again, and we cannot do this anymore. So there's something called the Fed Treasury Accord, 1951. And that ended um, that ended the uh, the formal... Uh, control of the yield curve. But what then happened was even more interesting. And what then happened was kind of nothing. And, uh, you know, the, um, 
uh, the uh, long data treasury was two and a quarter in 1946. In 1956, 10 years after the lows, and five years after the end of the accord, the long data treasury yield was three and a quarter. 100 basis points only of rise in yields, despite the market having been paid. So it, it shows you so, so many things. It, it shows you, you never know, right? That's one lesson that I think I have learned. It shows you that uh, uh, the bond market can take its sweet time, especially in these trends where they get started. I mean, it was three and a quarter in 1956, and then it was, uh, it was four and a quarter in 1966. <laughs> this was, for a secular bear market, this took its, its time in <laughs> getting started, right? So, so, you know, we can make these, uh, you build these models and these uh, uh, dream castles for some of us about uh, how all this might end. But one possibility, it's, it's not the one I hope for as a journalist, I'm in the, I'm in the volatility business. One possibility is that, is that um, uh, the trend ends, but uh, ever so deliberately. And uh, what happens, happens gradually. I don't think that's the case now because of the buildup of leverage and the, all, these, uh, uh, all these derivatives uh, lying around waiting to be exploded. But um, that was what happened then. Um, shifting gears, but, but on the similar topic of the end, one thing I really like to discuss is what do you think about the prospects? I mean, of, of the so-called debt jubilee or cold fusion and what might the world look like in its wake? I mean, obviously if the Fed were to, if central banks were start were to start losing the bond markets of their various countries, uh, obviously, if that were to happen in Japan, they got a pretty good hand to play to just, you know, swap their bonds for some longer dated bond with like no yield. Um, do you have uh, any thoughts on the 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 the, li- the likelihood of 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 uh, cold fusion or or debt jubilee? And and even if you don't think it's very likely, maybe you could comment on what might the world look like if Japan did that. I, I think it's yeah. an interesting intellectual exercise. Well, here's something that Japan did um, in the 1930s. You know, the, uh, the Japanese were uh, great Anglophiles. They 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 uh, uh, they admired British institutions, and they uh, especially in the monetary realm. The Bank of Japan uh, was a devoted uh, student of the words and deeds of Governor Norman, who was the head of the uh, the Bank of England, and uh, Norman was a gold standard guy, and the Japanese wanted to get back on the gold standard after World War One, and they finally did. They finally did in 1931, just in time uh, to watch the British depart the gold standard. So what happened when the Japanese were on it, but the world was moving off it, was that the yen appreciated, the Japanese export market collapsed, commodity prices collapsed, and uh, the governor of the Bank of Japan was assassinated. His name was Inoue. He was assassinated by a, 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 a kid from the, the countryside that was a member of a blood oath association or something like that. He um, was reacting to what seemed a, a very hostile and heartless form of alien capitalism. So he assassinated the, Bank of, the governor of the Bank of Japan. And uh, so uh, they took a hint at the Bank of Japan, and they got off the gold standard. What happened then? 
Well, what happened then was the biggest day in the history of the Tokyo Stock Exchange. They closed it early because of the riot to the upside. And that wasn't a debt jubilee exactly, but it was an inflation jubilee, right? Well, that's a long time from now. Let's, let's, let's look a little bit nearer in history to what um, has happened in this country. Well, um, not exactly a debt jubilee, but an inflation jubilee, to be sure. August 15, 1971, right? Nixon picks us off uh, the Bretton Woods gold standard. That was a Sunday evening. He, um, Monday morning, the stock exchange opens. What will it do? The dollar has lost its foundation. The United States has defaulted. We have proven faithless in our pledge to redeem. Orthodox finance is, if not dead, is certainly imperiled. What did we do? The stock market was up the most it ever. That was a record <laughs> upside day to that moment in the stock, market, stock exchange's history. So, so these such events, I think, are, if there were um, some such thing, if there were a move to, uh, uh, to uh, renounce debt or to institutionalize inflation in some way or, or to make a, a, a more manly effort to debase the dollar. These guys really haven't started. You know, they, 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 I, could, I could do a better job than they could. How about, how about a demonstration burning of about uh, 2,000 pounds of $100 bills in the front lawn of the Federal Reserve Building just to, for openers? But if there were such a thing, I think it would be, uh, I think that the, the stock market on form would be a beneficiary. I can't imagine the gold market not being one. Um, but, uh, you know, here's a little mind experiment. What would happen if the Fed uh, began to do QE, um, but the use of proceeds was to buy up outstanding debt and then to stockpile it and then to engage in the Treasury with some uh, gentleman's agreement that we will stockpile it and uh, you will hold us harmless against um, anything resembling uh, mark-to-market losses or impairment of the balance sheet. By the way, the Treasury has already done that. You can see that happening, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. So I, these things are not, they, they might seem far-fetched, but they have precedence. And I don't think they're so far-fetched. I, I don't think the time is now, but what do I know about timing? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, which is, which is always the tricky part. But the, the the world. I mean, I think it's I think it's plain. The world has too much debt. I think the world perhaps has too much debt in relation to the cash flows available to service that debt. That's a more precise way of saying too much debt. So what do you do about that? Well, you conflate it away. But that seems to be easier than said than done. We, my goodness, it was always thought that human beings could procreate and debase. But it turns out that. Uh, falling birth rates and um, disinflation are calling into question even those verities. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I think there, there might be such a thing. And, uh, and the, uh, on the evidence of, uh, of history, that such a thing would be uh, rather welcomed. Does this mean that we've reached the point where perhaps there is now too much debt to inflate away? Because that was always the preferred option, I guess. Yes. I don't know if that's the case or not. I think that the the very thoughtful and very successful bond bill bulls such as Van Hoisington um, and Lacey Hunt, I think yeah. that is their position. But I don't know. I'm I'm sorry to end this on a note of uh, of uh, ignor- uh, the most perfect ignorance, but I, I I simply don't know. 
Jim, there are a few people who will say I don't know when they don't know. Most people will come up with an answer. So we appreciate that just that I, much. Trust me. I would just say that um, I would have said that the, there was too much debt in Japan at the government level to inflate away, you know, many years ago when they went down this path. And they've got half of it under control. And basically, they, they've euthanized the bond market there. So who knows how much too much is supposed right. to be? Yeah. Well, we'll, oh, that's, we'll find okay. out. Okay, Grant, that's my answer. Jim, listen, thank you so much for giving us this time. Um, yeah, oh, it's it's, it's always what, a thrill to, to hear you and to get a chance to chat with you. So uh, we, we will make sure, I know you've got to jump off, we will make sure that we let everybody know who doesn't know how to follow you, how to follow you when we, when we wrap up shortly. But we'll, okay, we'll let great. you jump. And thanks so much again for your time. Thank you, fellas. What fun. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Yeah, it's so funny. You know, I talked to Jim pretty regularly yeah. and um i've read all of his financial history yep. books and all the other <laughs> yes. ones and every now and then he just spews a bunch of stuff i had no idea about you know like he just the top of his head was going through that all that stuff from the 40s yeah. 50s and 60s i just think it's useful for people to to get shaken out of this mindset that we have today and realize how different things were with underlying variables at least at a headline rate that weren't so different i mean this gets back to one of my hobby horses the whole psychology of things but anyway but but this is it's when you, when you listen to jim talk and and you know what baffles me is the when the cnbc's and the foxes of the world and bloomberg have jim on and then they don't let him speak i mean you could sit here and listen to jim talk all day long and and just interrupting him when he's in a flow like that is 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 doing a disservice to the to the listeners to the viewers to everybody because his his knowledge is is just unbelievable and and i think you're you're right as i was listening to him run us through that period which i was very keen to have him do because i'm as i said i'm listening to it and i'm i'm just going check 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 and the conditions are all in place and i think that's the important thing to understand it, it may be a horse of a different color but we have everything in place for a repeat of a situation that's happened before. And, and I think that's the important thing for people to realize when, when you do get to these extremes where you believe that extrapolation is your friend and things can never change and it will always be this way, that's precisely the time when you need to start really thinking hard about the opposite outcome. Yeah, well said differently, it's when people are so convinced that things can't change um, then, then they've acted on that, and and it has to go on long enough to have had enough people act on that to really embed the mindset. You know, when Jim was talking about that period, he brought back a couple of memories for me, which I didn't want to make it at the time, so I didn't want to disrupt him. But I'll never forget when when those when those Treasury coupons Treasuries came at fifteen percent. Sam Nakagama was the economist at Kidder Peabody, which is where I was. And he was making the case that you shouldn't buy the 15% coupons because rates were going to 16. Right, and why right. would you want to buy it? And I remember, uh, and I remember um, not long thereafter, you know, when people invented zeros, the period where he talked about in, in um, 84 when ra real rates went to back to a, about 1,000 because rates backed up to 13 or 14. And I was running equity money at the time and, and we, we were buying zero coupon bonds because you know, the, the, they guaranteed a better rate of return and you're probably going to be able to get out of the stock market. You know, the whole, well, there's value here, um, even if no one believes that the trend is going to change, which is exactly the opposite of what we have now. There is no value guaranteed. You can't make anything except if you trade them on a, on a spike. And yet all the trends are in place to make that change. So it, it seems to me that 
if you couldn't change people's minds easily in 84 when 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 rates backed up to you know 13 or 14 percent and underlying inflation was four or five um it, it's and th- you were getting a real proposition to take the other side of that right. process yeah. now you're not really getting anything so it's taking longer to make that make the trend change right because to bet against that now you can't you you have to short the zero coupon bond instead of buy the 14 percenter. And that's not really such an interesting thing to do. So I think that that may explain why this is maybe a harder trend to change. That and, of course, the fact that there's so much monetization going on, which would make bonds worth less over time, but in the short run, perhaps work more because of flow of funds, et cetera. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we, we, we've, as, we've, as we've gone down this journey to, to figure out the end game, you know, we've been talking about bond markets we've been talking about but we haven't really had that conversation that we have with Jim there about maybe looking at it from the fiat versus hard money maybe you know maybe that is the end game maybe the end game is just a return to the gold standard you know of, of some form which which again is something I've spoken about in the past and and makes sense to me and, and it would be a kind of natural bookend to to the period from 1971 when really all this began to be put right back where we were. And and look, let's face it, right back where we've always gone throughout human history. Right, uh, other than the fact that that would impose a discipline on the central bankers well. and politicians, <laughs> which they're not gonna be keen to have. It would, it, it, we need, we would need to get to the part where taking some medicine and getting on a sound standard seems to me, we would need a ton of pain, you know, to get yeah. people to wanna do that. Oh, look, for, for sure, and, and, and you know, I made this point in, um, a presentation I gave a couple of years ago called Cry Wolf, talking about what you need for a return to the gold standard. People always talk about it as if it's a choice, as if one day we wake up right. and go, you know what, maybe Good we should point. go back to the gold Good standard. Point. And, Good and point. my point has always been, it's never a choice. It's a, it's the answer to a problem that leaves you no choice. And and at the time I gave the presentation, I said, you know, the conditions you need for this to happen are, are political unrest, social unrest, and market unrest. And we had the first two, but we didn't have the third. And so as we go through this, whether it's equity market unrest like we saw in, in, in March and bond market unrest, or it is the Fed losing the bond market, all the other pieces of that puzzle are in place now for, for a return of some sort to sound money. Let's not call it a gold standard because that's become such a pejorative phrase. Right. But, but a return of some sort uh, to sound money of some sort seems at this point to me inevitable i mean not imminent certainly but inevitable well i th- i think that's right um but um obviously that's a step or two ahead of where we are yeah today. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the end end game <laughs> yes right that's the end of the end game <laughs> let's 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 go one search at a time you and i shall yeah, yeah okay, God okay. Knows, this one's long enough. Right. well uh, um again a, a fantastic conversation as we knew it would be with jim um for those of you that aren't aware i God knows how that's possible. But uh, if you don't subscribe to Grant's Interest Rate Observer, then you absolutely should. I mean, it's a, it's a Bible in uh, in the investment world and has been since, I think, 1980, I think Jim started writing it. Um, you can find it more at grantspub.com. Um, the, Jim also has a Twitter account. Uh, again, it's at Grant's Pub, and they, and they release all kinds of podcasts and uh, information there that is just so, so valuable, Bill, yeah? Yeah, and they also have a, a, a an, an almost daily feature on the site too. And I don't know if you actually have to be a, a subscriber to get you that don't. or not. No, you don't. So uh, there, for folks who are on a tighter budget and can't don't think they can afford it, you can avail yourself of his wisdom by just going to the site and noodling around and finding stuff, which is worthwhile doing.
Absolutely. Um, and so I, look, I guess all that remains again is to, is to thank you for listening. If, if this is the first time that you've joined us um, and it was uh, the, the star name above the marquee of Mr. Jim Grant that brought you here, then please, please do go and check out our previous podcast with, um, with James Aitken uh, and Mike Green um, because, uh, again, the feedback for those have been remarkable. Um, and thanks to all of you who've, who've left feedback and, and, uh, and, and given us reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you haven't done that and you could take a moment to do it, we would greatly appreciate it. It really, really helps. Um, in the meantime, uh, we will leave you with our thanks. Uh, if you wish to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at TTMYGH. And I am at FleckCap. Yes, he is. We will see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.